I'm Dave Laird. I'm Matt Booker. And I'm Jim Gower, preparing to make an infinite series of grand entrances into pocket after pocket of space here in the Great Concavity. Jim, that, that's see if you one. can spot that one. <laughs> oh my gosh, I, I don't. Page five seventy one. No. <laughs> <laughs> Is that from Wallace's um, uh, philosophy thesis, "Fate, Time, and Language," or something? <laughs> no, in fact, it's uh, it's Tony Kraus, poor Tony. Oh um, yeah. Tony. A- after he's had the seizure, and he's thinking back on the sort of. Uh, grand entrances that stars would make in 1950s movies oh yeah and he's not not feeling so it's this is after he's been in the armenian library bathroom stall right had the seizure on the bus and then uh, he's moving on as we know not towards a particularly pleasant ending but the uh that description of uh of poor tony with a boa wrapped around mm-hmm. him making an infinite series of grand entrances it was just <laughs> for me it was both an example of the strange poetry of Wallace's prose mm-hmm. because it's uh, there's no ornament at all there's no sense that he's trying to write something poetic he's just the language itself is just sings and the the rhythm of it is beautiful, and it it's also an example for me of uh, this almost mystical ability of Wallace to take a otherwise completely unsalvageable human being and mm-hmm. make the character empathetic. Yes. I mean, I think poor Tony is uh, just for a. Uh, for one of the characters that's not at the center of the book is just fascinating because in some ways, you know, he, his character arc is just straight down. Yeah. It's like objection. Yeah. At the same time, he's, uh, he has this kind of heroic quality of, he just keeps going, you know, yeah. however bad it gets, it's just, okay, on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, it, and poor Tony is uh, my wife's favorite <laughs> side character. So uh, it's, a, it's a bit of an homage to Meredith. So, yeah. oh, that's so our guest today is Jim Gower. <laughs> and <laughs> as you can tell, uh, Jim, we're going to give you a little bit of introduction and then yeah. uh, get back to this because last we emailed I think you said you had not read Infinite Jest while you were writing the book. So now that you clearly have, uh, I might have to revise my questions for you. (laughs) (laughs) And I guess we should introduce uh, what book you've written, Jim. Uh, But listeners of our show have definitely heard your name before if they've listened in the last 10 or so episodes, because we've talked about your book, Novel Explosives, quite a lot on the show. And uh, Matt and I have both thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it and promoted it as much as we can on this show um 
So well, and I feel start like to the bio. Uh, of, <laughs> of all the books, and I will say this at, at right from the top that says of all the books that we have uh, promoted on the show, I think that yours uh, is the best or des and deserves the most uh, attention that it hasn't gotten. I feel like mm -hmm. anyone who is a literate reader, who is a fan of literary fiction and uh, especially sprawling novels, which most people listen to this uh, <laughs> podcast are. They're pretty down with uh, that. Then yeah. They would like your book. So I want more people to know about it. I want more people to discover it yes. and uh, more people to read it. And it's really an honor to, to be able to talk to you about it here today. Well, I'm, I'm really grateful, guys. It, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're not in a period where these kind of big, difficult novels are particular, particularly popular in the sort of culprit, corporate publishing world that we seem to be living in. I mean, I, I, it's not that there aren't a lot of great novels that I've read over the last years, but, uh, but the kind of, um, you know, writing and reading as an extreme sport is uh, <laughs> is not uh, not that popular these days. So, yeah. So, well, I mean, Wallace is at the forefront of that, and part of the reason why yeah. that sort of idea of literary genius that manifests itself in long novels is often uh, grouped together with a male, a white male sensibility. Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that that is definitely an either outmoded or outdated or on the way out uh, point of view. And so there's a big controversy within Wallace studies of a professor at Yale, Amy Hungerford, who straight up refuses to read Wallace. And one of her reasons is basically that that idea of she just resents the idea of like, oh, a genius. And it's some white guy who wrote a long novel. And that to me is I don't want to go down that path too far, but like yeah. I think that it it really causes you to miss out on a lot of great books if that's true i mean yeah well like you know if, if you go back a bit into some of the books that really influenced me on novel explosives you know somewhere near the top of the list is is george Eliot's uh, middle march and yeah and and daniel deronda i mean the the ability to write these, you know, long periodic sentences that don't seem to be going anywhere and then land exactly where they're supposed to. Uh, this is not a white male thing. I mean, it's sure, uh, sure. it's a style of writing that um, yeah, some enjoy or don't enjoy, but I'm not sure it should be for gender specific reasons or a lot of great female writers. And I mean, I probably have as influences more female and I would say non-white um, influences than, than anyone. Uh, yeah. I wanted to ask you about that actually, if I could interrupt, because at the beginning, yeah. uh, beginning of the book, you know, there's a lot going on with Pessoa, and uh, mm -hmm. you know the different identities that uh, 
that are that are popping up. But by the end of the book, I thought, wow, this this guy's clearly read uh, Gravity's Rainbow. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, a, a couple of times, and a great deal of yeah. world literature as well. Yeah. Well, of course, you're going to get 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 me right back into trouble talking with about white male authors. <laughs> sure. Yeah. No, certainly. I mean, that whole string, you know, with Gaddis and Gas, and I mean. Joseph McElroy, who I don't think people read too much anymore, but women uh, and men, right? Women, women and men, men. Uh, lookout cartridge, uh, the some of the you know great big extreme fictions of the the seventies and eighties and so forth, Gaddis and and so on. I you know these were all sort of heroes of mine when I was at the time a poet, but reading uh, a lot of novels. So yeah, Gravity's Rainbow was, you know, is certainly a touchstone. And But, you know, I, I'd go back for the tradition that these land in, you, you sort of go back. I mean, you, you probably go back to Cervantes, but in fact, Steve Moore could probably take you all the way back to the, you know, Hellenic novels that are the precursors. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I, I want to come back to that, uh, but we, I realize now we haven't really summarized the novel. Yeah, and I was going to say. Uh, just got a little off track on your biography, which I also want to come back to. Yeah. Um, I, I think that the book, uh, there's probably a really short synopsis that doesn't do it justice. And I feel like any, you know, lengthy five, six hundred, seven hundred page novel is difficult to summarize. But Dave, do you want to try to summarize it? (laughs) Yeah, I'll give it a shot. Um, So we have here a book that uh, sort of has three strands, I would say. The first begins with uh, a man waking up in Mexico and has no idea who he is or anything about his own personal history. But he has a great deal of knowledge about the world and about culture and about poetry, etc. and then we have contiguous to that two kind of hired gunmen characters who are down in uh, Juarez, Mexico, and uh, their aims become clearer as as the book goes on. And we have also uh, a venture capitalist from California who uh, waxes quite poetic in memoirs about uh, a great deal of things from wine to poetry to um the Gramsci and all kinds of Marxist and post-critical theory type stuff. Um, and as any good sort of mega novel does, these strands eventually become, I'd say, more clear throughout the novel and sort of coalesce uh, into into an end- ending that is, you know, satisfying and and fascinating to see how all these big pieces come together at the end. So we don't want to spoil too much, but I think that's kind of a, a quick overview uh, would you say that's that's, that's reasonable, summary, Jim? Dave. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'll give you give you three stars for that. Three, uh, four out of five three stars. Out of, four out of five. Uh, the funny thing is, is if you if you turned it into a linear narrative, the book takes place over the course of a single week in right. two thousand nine. Yeah. The week right, right after in Easter. the wee hours just after Easter, right. uh, April thirteenth, two thousand nine. Mm-hmm and ending the following Monday, if you, you could do a three sentence linear description of the, the story, it's, it's actually a fairly simple story, uh, but the, the way the story gets told 
which to me is always the more interesting part of uh, a novel in any case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I tried to stick to a pretty simple story. I mean, it's a, it's a venture capitalist who gets involved in a venture capital deal that it turns out has drug money behind it. Mm-hmm. He kind of discovers that there's something weird going on with one of the investors in the deal, finally gets called, told to give his profits back and heads down to El Paso to not so much to return the money, but really to figure out what's been going on and kind of gets drawn into this, eventually gets hit over the head and wakes up in Guanajuato with no idea who he is. Mm-hmm. So the straight story is what? Well, yeah. What's interesting about that? You know, it's, uh, <laughs> uh, on the other hand, if you move the pieces around a little bit and start with the guy waking up in Guanajuato with no idea, with his knowledge intact, but no idea as mm-hmm. to who he is, that's a somewhat more interesting place to start. Mm-hmm. And then, to kind of expand on that, to get rid of the usual trope, which is the man in search of his identity. In this case, our character who's been handed a kind of phony identity, a Scottish driver's license in the name of Alvaro de Campos. Rather than being in search of his identity, he isn't want to know anything about his prior identity. He just as soon leave it as it is and live in Guanajuato in the moment mm-hmm. in just with the beauty of the world. So in some ways he's fleeing his prior identity rather than pursuing it. So mm-hmm. anyway. Yeah. There's a lot going on there with identity and also time and space and cosmology. And <laughs> yeah. Like you just said, the way that the book is structured is saying something itself about the nature of time being lived backwards in a way rather than forwards. Mm -hmm. There's more, more than a little Proust at the bottom of that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think structurally too, like there are some elements of this book that remind me of infinite jest and the way that things are ordered. um, Certain things coming before others and, and kind of a, um, yeah, like it's 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 a really fun puzzle to solve this book, I think, in a way that Infinite Jest is also a fun puzzle. And I think I haven't had a chance to reread Novel Explosives yet, but I can imagine that rereading this book would also be very deeply satisfying in the way that I find Infinite Jest to be as well. Because yeah, you because I mean, then you have the sort of all the pieces. Alone, oh, yeah, too. Yeah. Speaking of the sentence level, Jim, would you mind if I give, give a few? I've picked two excerpts from the book. Can I give... Uh, our our audience sort of an example of of the kind of prose that we're we're talking about here would that be okay Please. okay so um <laughs> there there is a sentence in the in the book that is about two pages long that while i was reading it i was my jaw was just incrementally dropping further and further because the way that you just continue to to add to this sentence um for two pages was amazing and i actually said to matt uh, about a month ago when we were thinking about uh this interview i was like would it be cool to read this sentence to give the audience an idea and uh and he was like yeah let's do it and then so i tried reading it to rachel my wife and after about a page she was like okay um okay that's cool yeah i I get, i get like the the vibe of what's going on here and uh 
So I, I decided to sort of uh, shrink that down a condense little bit, it. condense yeah. it a little bit, but um, the sentence is amazing. So this is a sentence uh, kind of towards the end of the novel that's describing an RPG explosion, uh, a novel explosion, explosion, I guess you could say. So this is on page 674. Uh, and here, here's the description. The world being everything that is the case, suggestive of a world where nothing is sacred, this is talking about the explosion. Its world being anything that isn't the case. The world being many things that shouldn't be the case. The warhead shattered, scattering a cloud of pale gray particulates, heated by the warmth of a Comp B fireball, heated by their own intermetallic reactions, heated to the ignition point of a white hot particulates, the immense front car on the black draped train, leaving the boots on the ground, something on the order of 0.4 milliseconds to get their final affairs in order, pack their luggage for the black train's departure, and make any last few microsecond arrangements to prepare to leave the gray zone's blue skies behind and prepare for a sky gone thermobaric white. So that's an explosion, and there's, some, there's some characters who are about to be you know, consumed potentially in the, in that blackened moment. by the whiteness <laughs> and uh, wow what a gorgeous uh what a yeah, gorgeous it, piece of literature it, there it's it's probably worth pointing out that novel explosives are an actual category of explosive uh, as hopefully becomes clear in the the novel mm-hmm. and they are actively used uh they were actively used in in Iraq and Afghanistan mm, by the U S military, it by the U S military, their, their actual composition is supposed to be top secret. I did the research on actual novel explosives, which are made up of strange combinations of nanoparticulates. So nanotechnology being down at the atomic and molecular level. Mm-hmm. So this is a category of science, if you can imagine it, called lethality enhancement. <laughs> and yeah, oh, wow. uh, that's great. What, that's what kind of world do we live in that we need a whole category of science called lethality enhancement? But the purpose Jeez. of them is to take a ordinary RPG that would normally have an explosive like, uh, yeah, like RDX, for example, that sets off a pretty good explosion. Mm-hmm. Take the same thing, surround it with these fine grained particulates, kind of on the model of how a Kansas wheat silo explodes when grains of uh, fine grained powder go into the air and get ignited with a spark. Oh, okay. It's the exact same principle. Mm-hmm. You take these very fine-grained particulates, suspend them in a cloud, and then set it off with an RDX explosion, and it makes a huge thermobaric wave, and that means both huge heat wave and huge barometric overpressure wave that kills people without leaving a mark on them. And this, I find particularly eerie since I've seen photos of the after effects of novel explosives being used in Fallujah. Hmm. So this is, uh, you know, in some ways, it sounds like a kind of 
magical, imaginary thing. In fact, mm-hmm. it's very real and disturbing when you read these. So I don't actually know what's in the RPGs that we were using in Fallujah. But as you know from the novel, I make a lot of spec. Yeah, I do a lot of speculating about what could be in them. Mm-hmm. All of those are taken from patents um, that the lethality enhancement scientists have filed on different combinations of nanometric particulates that could be used to create massive explosions. So very strange research in the patent office. Anyway. (laughs) No kidding. And I want to make it clear to our listeners that some of this, like you're saying, is a, a critique in a way of this idea of lethality enhancement, just like the, I think that a lot of the discussion of venture capitalism is in a way a critique of the system or the forces that could bring about the sort of conditions that the characters find themselves mm-hmm. in. So it's not, I mean, and maybe I'm mischaracterizing that, but it's not so much to me that you're taking pleasure in the fact that these explosives exist as like the fact that they could be used by really almost like a non-state entity with the drug cartels. Yeah, That's, absolutely. That take on yeah. It. Um, yeah. It, it, yes, to be clear, as is noted on the back of the novel, I this may sound like a joke I invented for the novel, but I am sort of <laughs> known in the venture capital industry as the world's only Marxist venture capitalist. And uh that's so the kind I, of I love that, and actually, I want to ask you a little more about that because yeah. um, uh, one thing that really stuck out to me in this book is the fact that uh, you know capitalism and capital now is so sort of concealed by these obscure balance sheets and shell companies. You know, the currency isn't really physical, although in this book there is a huge duffel bag full of <laughs> sure, currency. Right. Uh, but it, there's all these extremely complex, you know, financial instruments uh, in this huge global economy. The scales are, are massive and the pirates, the raiders that are able to get to it can really get to staggering amounts that they couldn't in any other time in history. Uh, and it's and still fly under the radar. You know, you have this great thing about what kind of uh VCs or, or hedge fund managers can make a billion, two billion in a year. They just came out with a new list. Ray Dalio's at the top of it. And it's like these guys making $2 billion a year. It's just absolutely staggering. But, you know, my question for you is like besides just like raising awareness of this issue is like you live it. Is there anything we can do to stave this off or, or are we really just fucked here? <laughs> Uh, man, I, w- I wish I had a good answer for that. It's, you know, the the problem is we're in this phase of hyper-capitalism where money is, the flows of money are themselves monetized in massive ways. These hedge fund managers that make, uh, I'll leave names out of it, but <laughs> some of these guys... One of one, one of them runs a hedge fund called Renaissance, if you can imagine, partners, has, has made at least a billion or two billion a year for 25 straight years. And all of this is done with computers, 
there's absolutely nothing socially productive <laughs> that that comes of this. This is not being invested in uh, factories and building things or right. producing food or, or jobs or jobs right, yeah. or helping to save the planet from climate change and you know, I hope it's clear that the perspective that this is ultimately being right, written from is we live on this miracle, this in this vast cosmos with virtually nothing of of interest in it, other than that I happen to find the cosmos kind of fascinating. Sure. <laughs> but we live on this spinning blue jewel of a planet that if we're not careful, we're going to consume it to death. Mm-hmm. And so this hyper-capitalism, all of the things in the book that are critiqued come back to this, we have to do something to save this miracle that we live on. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that's maybe uh, not the easiest problem to solve, but one of the things from my perspective is, we need to be more aware of how hypercapitalism is has gone completely amok. Mm. It's the money accelerating in an accelerating fashion is going into fewer and fewer pockets. You know, I use the example that one hedge fund guy made the median U.S. family income every two minutes, fifty-two thousand every two minutes. <laughs> 365 days a year. And, uh, you know, and then the year that followed that, he made the gross domestic product of Nicaragua. You know, Jesus. what w- w- is there something wrong with this picture? Right. Uh, capitalism yeah. itself has gone into lethality enhancement mode. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even from that quote I just I, read, suggestive of a world where nothing is sacred. Uh, to describe the way that this explosion occurs, right? Like it's so uh, misanthropic. It's unbelievably misanthropic. And I can see that principle also applying here in this context too. Well, and some of the bleakness for me is uh, maybe the context is a little different because I know you wrote this before Trump was elected. Um, But, you know, there's a big part of the novel that takes place uh, underneath a bridge in El Paso and, you know, I'm thinking while I'm reading the book now that that bridge, we have like a temporary concentration camp built underneath that bridge. And we've got this, you know, asylum refugee problem from countries like Nicaragua, you know, that we have completely impoverished. And mm. in a way that the, the global novel, the global scale that I think, you know, your ability, uh, you have an advantage as a VC in a way that not all writers, maybe none that I've ever read before, can really create a compelling story out of a business deal <laughs> and and tie that back to, you know, the sort of socioeconomic implications of of what's happening to those people there. And I, I'm wondering if that, um, you know, this is a very unique novel in that way. And like what uh, what was sort of informing your, your politics? Has it changed before or since 2016? Mm. Well, hey, you know, there's a line in the novel where, um, yeah, the character affectionately known as Douchebag is noting 
a time when Anapra, this completely impoverished area to the west of El Paso, is about 40,000 people that live in hovels, things that are built out of, uh, basically out of a, the garbage dump of Juarez or one of the three major garbage dumps in Juarez. And I spent far too much time in Juarez uh, researching this. Um, Anapra is a complete mess. If you go back 30 years, Anapra was one town that was both U.S. and Mexican, and kids in Anapra went to school on the American side of the border, and the the people, U.S. citizens who lived on the American side of the border went in to shop in, in Anapra. And the character observes that that was before they built the fence and declared it illegal to be Mexican. And that, that effectively is what Trump has now hyped up into. Hmm. It's, it's not only illegal to be Mexican, it's illegal to be Latino, it's illegal to be anything that's other than, hmm. yeah, uh, white male, dominant and uh this is a horror for me uh, well and uh, a lot of those guys who are vcs you know actively voted this stuff in or hedge fund managers let's say in order to save a buck on their llc or s corp that they have filtered money through for a deal i mean the trade-off between taxes and literally everything else or tax cuts and everything else it seems pretty stark uh when you when you put it you know, up against a town like Anapra, right? Like a trade-off for humanity versus like a tax cut. Yeah. That seems very stark to me. Yeah, you and you can't even imagine how big the tax cut was for the hyper capitalists, if I can if I can call them that. Because one of the things that they did was to lower the taxes on what used to be ordinary income for hedge fund managers and um, the guys that run like Bain Capital, uh, the, the kind of income that they produce in terms of fees is now taxed at like 10%. I mean, you, you look at Mitt Romney's tax, re, tax returns. I don't mean to pick on Mitt. You know, he's <laughs> he actually pays way more taxes than Trump does. But you know, he averaged paying a tax rate of 14%. Now, I personally pay my taxes. In fact, my uh, tax attorney said I pay more tax per dollar than anyone in the U.S. And <laughs> she probably would know. I, I pay like 55 cents on the dollar because I, I think we need to pay our taxes and contribute to the, the better good. But it it's staggering if people had a little more financial literacy or a little more insight into what's actually going on with where all this money goes. It's, uh, it's really horrific, horrific. I mean, many of these guys, and you don't see them on the Forbes 400 list. These, the guys on the four, Forbes 400 richest Americans and all that are just people that want attention. The guys with real money don't even show up on that list because most of their money's stashed offshore. Uh, 
and they only pay taxes on whatever they need to bring onshore to pay their bills. And yeah, it's well, it's and a, a lot nightmare. of that was exposed in like the Panama Papers, and it seemed like that that expose or even like raising awareness of it really did nothing to change the the political system or or change a damn thing except for actually get them more tax cuts and ability to store more offshore yeah so i mean it's pretty bleak if you keep me on this topic we'll be on for hours <laughs> so no. let, me, let me switch gears though and ask you because this is a good point to ask you you mentioned earlier that before writing fiction you were a poet mm -hmm. Right. And I want to back up a little bit because we had uh, a link to your appearance on Bookworm, where, Bookworm, where you were talking not about um, your book, but about Guy Davenport and Hugh Kenner. And you were a student of Hugh Kenner's. And I want to ask you about that point in time of were you actively writing poems and like, could you foresee the the point in your life that you are at now back then? Yeah, so um, I started writing poetry while I was working at RAND, specifically their defense unit called RDA, building a model of nuclear war against the Soviet Union. That's kind of briefly mentioned in the, right. in the novel. As a mathematician, is that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. I was given a year and four or five guys to help on this. I had to build a model of nuclear fallout. And I, they said they were going to test my solution against uh, this five-foot stack of data. So I was trained as a mathematician. All mathematicians are inherently lazy. So rather than actually trying to build this from the ground up, I started looking for patterns in the data and kind of reverse engineered the data. It took me about two weeks to write this one long equation that reproduced every data point in the four foot stack. And because of the kind of contract we had, I was told to look busy for another year. So I started writing poetry <laughs> and reading. And seriously, that's, that's when I started. That was, I was 21 at the time. So from then on, I was essentially a poet trying to make money at uh, computer science. You know, my mother was a great computer scientist. I grew up with skills in real-time operating systems, that kind of thing. And so when I got to a certain point, I thought, you know, I got to go back and get kind of the history of literature. So I had done a lot of reading, but I went off to study with Kenner at Johns Hopkins. I was publishing poetry at the time in Paris Review and Poetry Magazine and a variety of other places. If people are interested in the poetry, you can Google Jim Gower poetry and you'll see the poetry, which was going to be a book that I was going to publish in the 80s and then decided not to. Hmm. Um, but the poetry is all there. Had you, had you tried a memoir as well? You kind of allude to the poet in the novel who contemplates writing a memoir of the sort of uh, venture capital industry called Tales from the Crypt? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, was that the, the inside did you story? Consider that? In, no, yeah, no, that was that, that was just or? that was just a gag. Uh, just made up. The, yeah, that was totally made up. The 
the VC writing the inside story of venture capital was was just a gag. <laughs> but when I was studying with Kenner, I was a poet. Eventually, Kenner stumbled upon my poetry about a year or so into my studying with him and told me to leave. He said, you know, tell me one academic who's written great poetry and I'll let you stay. And I said, well, off the top of my head, I can't think of any. He said, get out of here before it destroys your poetry. But what I was working on with Kenner, Kenner was uh, the topologies of literature, and I won't even attempt to explain that. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know it's what that a, would mean. <laughs> a, yeah, a topic that only <laughs> Kenner would would come up with. He's the only English academic who's actually written a math book. Um, he and I had endless hours talking about homeomorphisms and isomorphisms, and uh, there actually is something to that. But I came to believe that. Mathematics is a language, and the language of literature are two funda fundamentally different things. Mm. If I try to explain that, we'll, we'll go off into a long philosophical discussion. But <laughs> just a, a flavor of it is that the fundamental basis in novel explosives for why there are so many different discourse worlds all of these worlds of military discourse, of monetary discourse, wine of wine is a major uh, one. Lethality yeah. of wine. Yeah, wine. wine. <laughs> every I tried to put as many different discourse worlds in there as I possibly could. Mm -hmm. Because the fundamental assumption is that language, self, and world are ontologically intertwined. That there's no such thing as language by itself. That's kind of the illusion of the dictionary. And I mean language in the broadest sense of systems of mm. signification. There's no such thing as the world just by itself. And there's, and there's no such thing as the self just by itself. All three of these are intertwined and specifically dialectically or dialogically intertwined. I won't go too much deeper than that, but the re part of the reason for all these discourse worlds is to try to make the reader gradually aware that, wow, the discourse world that I live in, everybody goes off to work. And I mean, you, you know this, Matt, because you work in a certain discourse world. They all, they all talk the, the same way. They've got a certain language mm -hmm. that they work in. And everybody lives in these isolated discourse worlds and and speak a language and the self that you are within that discourse world and the way the world looks through that discourse world is kind of one unified ontological intertwining of things hmm. so for me if a reader came away and said i better watch out for what discourse world I'm trapped in, like am I trapped in the discourse world of consumerism, for example, or of a military discourse world that mm -hmm. finds X, Y, and Z to be good causes to go to war, or the war on drugs to be something 
worth fighting because we have to go get these narcotics guys while failing to recognize that we're the ones that are consuming all the drugs and funding the whole thing. Um, yeah, be careful of the discourse world that you may be trapped in. Well, let me tell you, that's one thing I really love about this book is that a lot of, you know, this is your first novel. And a lot of first novels are written by people in their 20s who have not lived in any of those discourse <laughs> worlds or studied them for years and years and years. And I think uh, it's really refreshing for me to read a novel by someone who has spent time on the ground, clearly in the places that you're writing about, but in the worlds of whether it's finance, whether it is uh you know, military-grade explosives, what, whatever you're writing about, you have not uh, skimped on no. <laughs> giving us those, those discourse solutions. And that's some of the appeal of Wallace, who is also a mathematician. Yeah. So I want to switch gears a little right. bit uh, and ask you about... Well, he wasn't a mathematician so much as a... He had studied analytical philosophy, which on paper can look like right. <laughs> uh, straight-up math problems. Um, and so symbolic, wanna, symbolic, symbolic logic, logic as well, logic, right. so, which is... Yeah can is the basis for computer technology so yeah so he may not have been a pure mathematician there is a lot of mathematics in infinite jest however so it was a discourse world <laughs> yeah. he was interested the eschaton in. sections particularly yeah. Yeah. are heavy on that yeah yeah or so fast let's, let's forward transforms for example so yeah. you said you didn't you didn't read uh, Infinite Jest or Bologno before you wrote the book, but now that you now you have read Infinite Jest, is that correct? Yeah, I was in afraid in, in advance of writing the book. I was afraid of the anxiety. I had a sort influence. of advanced uh, anxiety of influence yeah. over <laughs> resulting from two books. I knew that Bologno's twenty six sixty six was going to deal with Juarez and the fem feminicides or femicides as they're now called, mm. the, the murders of women, which at the time Bologna was writing, were thought to be the result of perhaps a mass murder on the loose. And I knew that Wallace was in interested in many of the same things that I am. So Wittgenstein, mm -hmm. Uh, symbolic logic and uh, math adjacent kinds of things. He was a dictionary reader, uh, which I've been since I was a kid. And I, I started seeing all of these interests we had in common. And I thought, oh my God, if I read this book, I'm never going to escape the influence of it. And yeah, it was kind of funny that when I finally got done with novel explosives and Red Infinite Justice, like, oh, yeah, he's got all my words in there. Uh, that's cool. I, yeah, teratogenic clouds. Yeah, that's kind of good. Well, I use teratogenic a different way, but, uh -huh. uh, you know, that's all right. And I was kind of relieved that the novels didn't feel too close to each other. Mm -hmm. Let's put it that way. Yeah, they're, they're similar but, to me in the sense that they both do a real deep dive into some really specific subcultures. Um, yeah. And uh, there's a lot of kind of code switching between them throughout each book. Um, yeah. And, you know, like you've got some huge sentences in this book. Wallace has some as well. But there's there's a great deal of, of distinction between your your work and his, too. 
Well, so. well, and both books, I think, in some ways are funny. So funny. And Absolutely. I, I, man, I'm so glad you said there's that. There's great moments I, of levity I, I in I thought I was going to sound strange if I said that. But, uh, <laughs> well, yeah. There's a lot of that, that kind of humor that uh, is, especially from the first person point of view, maybe you can talk about writing this, is that clearly... Uh, it's more fun to write if you're having fun and <laughs> yeah. you're, that comes across in, you know, at the sentence level or the language of it. But uh, I thought uh, there was a lot of times where I just, uh, and there's some metafictional elements too oh, yeah. that, are, that are similar to Wallace where you're sort of addressing the reader. Uh, do you want, do you want to talk about that? I mean, yeah. you mentioned you're influenced by people who were, you know, maybe metafictionists in the seventies and eighties, but right. Right. Um, I mean, did you just find yourself saying, eh, fuck it, I'm going to throw that in or like, meh, why not? Yeah, I mean, like, to me, it was kind of an homage. I mean, we're 40 years past the time when metafiction was uh, was central to the way people were writing. I mean, I think Gas coined the term in maybe 1970. And so the sort of heyday of metafiction was 60s, 70s, something like that. Right. So it was more a uh, homage. Uh, yeah, let let's put some metafictional elements in that. That's part of the history of the novel. Let's let's put it in there. Um, you know, I there are some people that read the book and thought, well, that that's kind of retrograde, or you know, he's trying to go back to uh, um you know, a time that we've moved beyond. Well, I don't think we ever moved beyond anything in literature. You right. know, we, yeah. whatever, whatever resources literature can produce, let's use them all. You know, uh, why not? Well, in a similar reaction, when Wallace's posthumous novel, you know, The Pale King came out and, and there was a big metafictional element to that book and people thought, really, he's going back to this? Right. Like, I yeah. thought he had moved beyond that. And so there was... Definitely, I don't know if it's confusion or, or misunderstanding of the, the role of or what Wallace took to be the role of metafiction. Um, but I want to ask you about another similarity you have, which is that uh, a big advocate or champion of Wallace's work was Stephen Moore. Yeah. And especially instrumental in bringing Wallace out to Illinois State University while he was finishing Infinite Jest. And, uh, you know, published David Markson, who wrote Wittgenstein's Mistress, mm -hmm. uh, published a lot of other, you know, history of the novel books. And then his latest collection of works was also from uh, Green Integer, Zero Gram Press. So it was quite surprising to me as a reader to see Stephen Moore blurb with your book and advocating about bookworm to me that's uh imprimatur of like absolutely by sight unseen if Stephen moore tells me to do it. <laughs> so, so i want to ask you about that connection because it just seems too good to be true yeah what what happened was when i finished so novel explosives is actually my second novel um i wrote a first Sorry. yeah no problem no problem there's no reason you would know it uh since I stuck it in a drawer, but the first novel is called Nigerian Scam. And I wrote that, stuck it in a drawer, and the next day sort of heard the voice of Alvaro speaking and started writing novel explosives and then spent, you know, the next seven years writing five, six hours a day, starting at 
three thirty in the morning uh, on novel explosives, and then going to your um, day job at well, the right? at the end of it, yeah, and then going on to work. The at the end of it, I was going to stick it in a drawer, and then I thought, I don't know, maybe maybe I shouldn't do that. I was coincidentally at the time reading Stephen Moore's history of the novel. In fact, I can tell you exactly where I was. I was in the Spanish golden age and uh, reading about Quevedo and Cervantes and, uh, and all these great writers of, you know, the early 17th century. And I, I stopped for a second. I said, I wonder if Stephen Moore is like a real person, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> and so, you know, I, I Googled him and, you know, I actually found his email address. And so I just cold emailed him and sort of explained that I written this novel, didn't know if it was worth anything, but would he be willing to read it? And so I got a message back from him saying, yeah, I'd be happy to take a look. I should warn you that most fiction these days, I get 30 pages in and just close it because it's not very interesting. And so I sort of, you know, closed my eyes and mailed the manuscript off to him. <laughs> and it arrived, and that night he started reading. And then about four in the morning, I got an email from him. I mean, I was awake at the time. <laughs> I'm now Working on page on 225. Novel? This is uh, brilliant or something. Oh, wow. So Steve basically at the end of it said, you know, you have to publish this. Now, it turns out coincidentally, I'm sitting in the apartment of my editor, Pablo Capra, who we should mm -hmm. mention here. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Pablo. Yeah. Thank you. So Pablo had read the book. He took it to Doug Messerly, who is the publisher of Green Integer, before that was the publisher of Sun and Moon Press, a long 40 years in the publishing business. And Doug kind of on Pablo and Steve Moore's recommendation agreed to publish Novel Explosive. So that's kind of that's how the book story. came out. Without Steve, it probably would have ended up in a drawer. Um, wow, wow that, that's a great story. And, yeah. and, you know, anything that he champions, uh, like I say, I think his his voice carries a lot of weight uh, because he's had such success as a publisher. And he also has this interesting connection back to the uh, Hugh Kenner and that he worked on that collection of letters, uh, that two volume questioning minds of Hugh Kenner and Guy Davenport which uh, I just bought a few months ago and I'm taking my time. It might take me several years to go through that, <laughs> but it is, it is truly a treasure. And, uh, you know, I think Steve indexed it in a record speed and, uh, you know, is, is a sort of polymath type type person. So I was, I was very happy to see that uh, endorsement, but it's just such a rare such a rare thing, like Steve says, to get a novel that because uh, we get sent books occasionally. And even you know, I've been a book reviewer for 20 years. And so I've reviewed a lot of books. And sometimes I'll pick one up off the shelf and say, huh, I should read this. And then be like, oh, actually, I here's the review I wrote of it. <laughs> I don't remember a damn thing about it. <laughs> I think it would be hard to forget novel explosives, though. 
Well, and we'd love to be able to find, because Wallace isn't writing any more books, anytime someone writes a, a thousand page novel or 800 page novel that's called an encyclopedic novel, uh, you know, my instinct is to try it. Yeah. Yeah. And they're, they are of, you know, wildly varying quality. And, uh, you know, one question I have for you is writing in all of these different modes, you know, what, what did fiction allow you to do that you could not do with poetry or with writing about in, you know, not prose, nonfiction? Yeah. Well, um, the way my poetry progressed was, so first of all, I'm at heart still a mathematician, which is not necessarily apparent in the, in the book itself, but it's a kind of way of the joy that I find in writing is the same joy I found in problem solving and mathematics. So the way I went about writing poetry was to make it increasingly difficult to write. This is one of the things mathematicians also do. You know, if you've solved the problem of a certain difficulty, the last thing you want to do is go back and solve a problem that's easier than that. So you right. continue to increase the degree of difficulty. And what I ended up with in the poetry was I'd stripped away all poetic effects, um, all kind of ornamentation. Um, if you look towards the back of the collection of poems, you'll find about five or six poems that are bare of almost everything. I mean, there's almost nothing left there but the self and language in some kind of interaction. Uh, not Beckett exactly, but really severely stripped down. So when I set out to write the novel, it was, you know, I have this huge lexicon. I'm going to just spend it all because <laughs> I hadn't been able to spend it in the poetry. I was, yeah. I was so intent on limiting the means by which to produce poetic effects that it was, ah, oh, this is uh, freedom. I'm going to just let it loose. And, uh, and that sense you have of the sentences being kind of, uh, you know, discoveries that the readers make, that's exactly how they were written. I would sort of put myself in a difficult position linguistically, a difficult setup to a paragraph and see if I could write my way out into <laughs> a coherent paragraph. I had a pretty good sense of how the whole book worked and how it fit together but no sense at all as to how the pieces would be written. Hmm. So I would take a character up to a certain point and then, you know, peer in the window and write what I saw there. So those, the way the sentences work, and I think Wallace, I get the sense when I read him that he was doing the same thing. He didn't want to write the sentence before he wrote it. You know, it's not plotted out. It's, let's discover this together. And, you know, it's what makes Wallace magical. I don't mean to compare our work. Wallace is a, you know, grandmaster. And I, 
I don't even want to put myself in the same league. But I think it's a fair comparison, but, though, Jim. Yeah, <laughs> I'm comparing it. I'll, yep. I'll compare it happily. Okay, yeah. I'm not. But in any case, I'm I'm grateful. I'm grateful. But we appreciate you your know humility. what what you get in that sense with Wallace is you're constantly discovering. Wow, where did that come from? Mm. And I think David's joy in writing, when he still found joy in writing, which I think he made increasingly difficult to do with Pale King, yeah. uh, you know, when he still was in that joy of writing mode with Infinite Just, he was having those windfall moments of, wow, look at this, where'd that sentence come from? And then weaving those together, there's a quote from Ravel that I love. It's about his uh, piano concerto in G. And Ravel says he listens to the Adagio section and Adagio section then says, wow, it sounds so flowing. And I wrote it bar by bar and it nearly killed me. <laughs> and uh, that's kind of how I, Novel Explosives was written. And with Infinite Jest, you know, you get this sense of every sentence was, you know, risk it all. Just, and, you know, it's just to be able to sit down with a book and just make discovery after discovery. I'm talking about Infinite Jest. It's just, um, yeah, it's just magical mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. fantastic. Yeah. So. Another comparison that I would make between these two books that we're talking about specifically is that, and this came up on your interview with Michael Silverblatt on uh, Bookworm, is uh, there's this great moment in that interview where uh, he's talking about, Michael Silverblatt's talking about how you've written a novel here, Jim, about like the impossibility of life and the rapaciousness of humanity, but ultimately that this book leads us to generosity, kindness, and even faith. Uh, that's yeah. a moving procedure and one we don't really kind of expect normally from this novel. That's what Michael said to you. Um, and I see that so much in Wallace too, yeah. uh, in Infinite Jest. And then there's kind of like a, you know, a soteriological salvific uh, kind of thread throughout both of these novels that is, you know, deeply human and compelling and, um, and philanthropic ultimately. Um, so yeah. I think, I think, you know, for, if you're talking about payoff of fiction, like um, it's it's great to read a book that's really smart and funny and uh, and all those kinds of things. But if it lacks, you know, sort of that question of humanity or or enriches our hum- our sense of humanity somehow, um, you know, Wallace would say then that's not really art or, or right. good art. Um, and so I think novel explosives does that in really uh, profound ways as well. In, in the way that Wallace uh, well, does. And are, are you using Easter as part of that as well? Like the salvation part? Yeah, well... The rebirth? Yeah, so if it's deliberately started after salvation's taken, it that's the day before. We've, we've had salvation, now what? Mm-hmm. And so I sort of lead the novel up to this somewhat obscure next holiday, which is Divine Mercy Sunday, which is actually a more Eastern Orthodox um, holiday, but kind of transplanted into into Mexico. And so Divine Mercy Sunday is 
the day when the, even the most hardened of sinners can be forgiven their sins. So what we have is a kind of the week after Easter, but still that some path to salvation. Salvation for me is, um, yeah, it's how do we learn to love one another in a way that saves the planet? It's, um, and, you know, Dave, I, I have read your thesis, by the way. And you I'm have. Glad you, no way. I'm glad you brought up soterological and, instead of me, because I probably would have mispronounced it. But I can't yeah, believe you read it. I just cell... briefly included it in one of our email correspondence. Like, yeah. oh, here's this thing that when I read. When I started the wow. book, I had a great many things that I was angry about. Oh. And as I worked through the book, the attempt was to find, okay, how do, how do we salvage? How do we find salvation? How do we stand in the world in a way that will preserve the world for the generations to, to come? Mm -hmm. How do we save the planet? How do we what orientation in the world brings language, self, and world together in a way that's intertwined and has a something beyond the self, something beyond greed, something beyond war, something beyond human idiocy in all its <laughs> forms, and mm. uh, something well beyond lethality enhancement. And so... As I was writing, you know, I, I was raised as a Catholic, but dropped out of Catholicism when I was seven. Somewhere in there is probably <laughs> still, a, still a Catholic. But, but I would mention, you know, Gramsci specifically found common roots to Marxism and Pauline Christianity mm -hmm. um, yeah, in that attempt to, you know, save all of us to save yeah. save the you know the way this is is put um is actually earlier in the book that if we are not on the side of those who are left behind in the process by which capital reproduces itself where are we so in some sense the novel is trying to find out where are we? Mm -hmm. How do we find a place to stand where we're on the side of those that are left behind in this process by which capital reproduces itself and consumes our planet along with it? Mm -hmm. So there is, um, there is really, a, my wife is quite religious and she assures me that this is a religious book and I should just consider it that way. <laughs> well, that's funny. Yeah, you uh, said you said to Michael Silverblack that it's not that it's not a specifically theistic book, but that you draw on yeah. a lot of things that you consider to be sacred. And I think that really comes across. And I like right. that you said that you started from a place of anger writing this book because it it's clear that it is a like a righteous kind of indignation that yeah. um, that pushes this novel. Yeah. Uh yeah, I will 
will spare you the sources of that anger, but <laughs> I have seen the world of hypercapitalism yeah. up close and personal, and it's ugly. It's going it's going to destroy the planet, and we we need to we need to stop it. So. I just want to add one thing on that point that I get particular. One of my hobby horses is Jeff Bezos's idea that the only thing good he can do for the planet is to like build space travel so we can leave Earth. <laughs> I found that I find that really like upsetting yeah. and actually like offensive. Mm-hmm. And as much as possible, I try to rail against that the absurdity of his claim because his his hundred billion dollars that he is just sitting on uh could could actually do a lot of good yeah uh, and and i i don't want to like you say i don't want to make the whole show about this but uh that i i would be remiss if i didn't mention the absurdity and stupidity of that particular line of reasoning yeah um, insane i mean the conditions under which this planet came to exist at just the right distance from the sun in just this solar system with just the right atmospheric conditions to produce some form of life and then to produce eventually a form of life that's actually sentient and ought to have enough sense to be a shepherd of the incredible miracle of our planet. The fact that people with money would say, oh, yeah, let's build a means of escaping this. Where? Where? No, this is it. This is the one chance we've got. So, yeah, I'm sorry. (laughs) No, I'm with you. And, you know, the the other, before I forget, I feel like we had tons of questions. Like the the book is so dense, there's like a million directions. There are a lot. We could, yeah. Uh, one thing, if we don't get to I, the last thing I have for you to ask before we wrap up is a question. You seem to have really enjoyed writing this book. Um, you know, are, are you still writing? Are you still enjoying it? Yeah, I'm sort of the Rilke school of writing. You don't do it unless you have to. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I ascribe to that model as well. I Yeah, I, I think there's another book, um, but... Yeah, I mean, one of the things I didn't want to do was put my head down and look up seven years later and go, wow, what happened? Because I was in an intense zone of absolutely living the novel 24 hours a day for seven years. I needed a bit of a break to refill things. And if I have to write another one, I will. And Probably it will be because something that I didn't think of in novel explosives pisses me off and it's time to start writing again. <laughs> yeah. I like that. That's great. Yeah. Anger as a catalyzing force. Um, yeah. For, for well, I hope we gave justice. Yeah. David Foster Wallace's due here. I mean, he's, he's really one of my heroes and we do a whole other episode of, my thoughts on on Wallace and in in various uh, ways. Uh, I have it seems like large portions of this book stuck permanently in my brain, and uh, sure, yeah. as I'm sure you guys do. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and I'm really proud of you guys for doing the podcast and keeping the conversation going. I mean, it's, it's really important because if these kinds of books just fall off the radar, they'll come back, but it, it might be another 50 or 100 years and the conversation needs to continue. Uh, and, you know, I, and I don't, you know, I should just mention that one of the big influences for me in writing novel explosives was specifically a black writer, Machado de Assis from Brazil. If you've ever read the posthumous memoirs of, yeah, uh, right here on <laughs> okay. my desk. Is wow. like today. Yes. Okay. So if you know Machado anyone would, de Assis, it's Matt Booker, wonderful of writer, a small winner. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah. I don't care color, gender, wherever it's coming from. This has nothing to do with gender as far as I'm concerned. It's, uh, you know, let's, let's think big, bold ideas and not succumb too much to the restrictions of corporate fiction. You know, they, they have to make money at books. And I realize there's not big audiences for these kind of, bigger books. But, you know, as, as long as we keep the conversation going, I think that hunger is still out there yeah. and, and it, it'll come back. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, you mentioned that there are a few moments from Wallace's writing that have really like uh, entrenched themselves in your psyche. Can you share one or two of those anecdotes with us? Well, you know, some of the, I mean, you, you can't escape the the gately dream sequence at the end, however much I've you know had to work through sort of decoding what <laughs> yeah. Wallace had in mind for an ending to the book, which totally. I have my own version of, which I'll spare you. Uh, you know the the party where Joel uh, you know tries to commit suicide is just I, I don't know so vividly written that. As much as I'd like to escape it, I can't, you know, yeah. it's, uh, yeah. you know, as I mentioned, several of these, that, that scene in the, where poor Tony is stuck in the bathroom trying to survive on codeine cough mm -hmm. syrup and slowly coming unglued is, I'll never get rid of that one. And, yeah. you know, I say that as though I want to get rid of them. Now they're, you know, they're magical moments and. There's 25 others I'll think of when I, as soon as I get off the <laughs> yeah. the phone. But no, those anyway, are good ones. Actually, yeah, he, yeah he's a wonder. Yeah, I have a colleague, um, the school that I teach with. Him and I just co-wrote a new English 11 course for our school this year. I've been doing that for about the past six months, and I injected as much Wallace into it as I could. And as a result of him and I working on uh, this together, he he messaged me about two weeks ago saying that he picked up infinite jest from the library and he started reading it and he was kind of on the fence about it until he got to Molly Notkin's party and Joel Van Dyne having too much fun. Is that right? And he said he was absolutely like in it for the long haul after that. Hooked him. That's yeah. the one that did it for him. Yeah. Cause before yeah. he was like, I don't know what all these characters are. This is so diffuse and everything seems to be so disconnected. And then that, that scene just absolutely hooked him. Yeah, I mean, Wallace's willingness to let these strands go off in this kind of dispersion and then 
slowly pull them back and weave them together. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it takes a lot of courage as a writer to do that. And uh, as Steve Moore would tell you, he was one of the first to to see the original manuscript. Uh, he and Michael Peach each got a copy of it, as you, you probably know the story of the manuscript. It was about four inches thick in this microscopic, uh, you know, six point font that was single spaced and on both <laughs> sides of the page and all that. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, the, the, well, I'll, I'll leave it at that. The, the willingness of Wallace to let these strands go out, confident that yeah. he can then bring them back together and make meaning for us um yeah a heroic book Mm -hmm. heroic book that's right um obviously there's hours more things that i we want to talk about with you jim but we don't want to take too much of your time on this lovely sunday afternoon um what i'll do is in the show notes to this i'm gonna link to your interview with michael silverblatt on bookworm which is excellent uh you did a great interview with i-94 which is a radio show out of Chicago about a year ago, April last year, I think it was. Yeah. Uh, we'll link to that as well. So if people want more, and I'm sure they will, uh, go listen to both of those. And sh- are, are there many others out there? Um, no. Those no, the... it's... Okay, so we know, found them all. Okay, good. Hopefully feel... over time. Uh, you know, <laughs> I have a lot of patience. Uh, I'm not, the book's not going anywhere. It's, yeah, uh... Totally. I want to offer to our listeners to I'm going to offer a satisfaction guarantee on this book that <laughs> if you if you buy the book after today and you are not satisfied with it, email me your receipt and I will refund your money. <laughs> I'm going to offer a full satisfaction. I, I am confident that everyone who uh, appreciates Infinite Jest will yeah, love this book. Totally. And I don't I've never said that on any other book, but this one I guarantee you. Uh, is worth every penny of it. And uh, all of those years of you working, Jim, I just want you to know paid yeah. off because yeah. I think it's a phenomenal, phenomenal book. Uh, you guys are way too kind. And <laughs> Matt, if there are people that particularly love the book and would like a, I did, we did print a hard cover, cover version of this. If people particularly like the book and would like to have a copy of the hardcover for whatever reason it's uh it's kind of a pretty object that i they you can give them my email address and uh just feel free to write me and uh it's no cost so wow amazing i i guarantee you that uh you know i have uh foisted the book on several people (laughs) and uh and one of them in particular uh sends me uh under he underlines sentences in the book and posts them on Instagram, oh, yeah. and he is absolutely uh, in love with every page of yeah, it. So I mean, sure is. to me, I've gone back through it because I, I I finished the book last summer and I wanted immediately, like when I finished Infinite Jest, I wanted someone to talk to mm-hmm. about it. So I'm really hoping that um, you know having you on the show here today gets us uh, more people that we can discuss the book with yeah, because <laughs> totally. I think it's that phenomenal and it's uh, you know selfish I really of look us forward sort of. to. Yeah, it's totally selfish. I mean, as Dave, you you recently finished it. I mean, how did you feel when you finished the book? Oh yeah, like I had that similar kind of feeling of elation when you wrap, you know, something like Infinite Jest or the instructions by Adam Levin, which is another book that I would put in this category. Right. Um, right. 
and yeah, you're just like, the puzzle is so fun to solve and you're thinking back on it. And I kind of ran some of my thoughts by you, Jim, via email about yeah. like how, how you had it right. connections. You had and, it right. Yeah. Okay. So I was, I was mostly right. I was, I was affirming. Um, yeah. But yeah, like uh, at, yeah, at the sentence level, this book is, is a blast to read. Uh, thematically, the humanity of it is you know, phenomenal. And we could talk more yeah. about your, all the depth of research that went into this. You talk yeah. about it quite a bit on I-94. So your trip to yeah. Juarez specifically, you talk more about there. That's a good place for people to check out. Uh, and I will say too that, and I mentioned this in an email to you, that I'm very thankful for all of my years playing the video game Call of Duty uh, because <laughs> I was familiar with so many of the weapon names that you include, like the SMAW, the SCAR, AR-15, and a, and a host of others. And I was like, oh, yeah, I know what that gun looks like. Cool. Uh, yeah. You know, I've used that. So everybody's clear. <laughs> All that weaponry is not in there because I love guns. It was right. me trying I think that's to figure clear. out why <laughs> do we have a gun for every man, woman, and child in the United States? You know, what is it? There's some kind of fetishistic appeal to weaponry that we mm -hmm. in the United States uh, have been overcome by. And mm -hmm. It's not good for us. But uh, in any case, just a, if anybody thinks I have a gun fetish at the end of reading this, <laughs> that, that wasn't it. Anyway, yeah, no, I, I listen, didn't think that. It's like it's uh, descriptive, not prescriptive. I would yeah, say a lot of things yeah. in this book are, yeah. But but it it kind of shows the you know some of the why the fetishistic appeal of it and the research i did on all that was going on a lot of chat room sites with people whose fondest wish is to have somebody walk in their front door so they can blow them away i mean it's it's truly frightening so yeah but all that said let's step back and i really appreciate you guys keeping the conversation going. Thank you, Jim. Around novel so explosives, around infinite jazz. Yeah. You guys are heroes. Huh? <laughs> oh, thank you, Jim. It's really, it's really kind of you it to really say. Is, the yeah. feeling is definitely yeah. mutual. Can we? Can I leave the the listeners with one more quote from your book, please? Okay, so this is from page six eighty, and this is uh, a few pages after the quote that I read at the top of the show, and this is sort of about as the explosion is. I mean, it takes a f quite a few pages for the explosion to actually resolve. Uh, and the description throughout is absolutely brilliant. Um, but here's a particularly uh, human moment that I took from it. Uh, so this is from 680. All things considered, as we await the final outcome of Ray's last mission, we might let Gomez share a final thought. Something from his list of Shakespeare quotations, self-evident and apposite while signifying nothing, Although with Alice seconds left before the shock front arrives, he'll certainly need to keep it brief. It's too late now for that quote from Macbeth, full of walking shadows and dusty death and blowing out brief but enormous candles. It's far too late to wash our haunted hands and take to our beds in spotless nightgowns. And as for that last syllable of recorded time, we've already heard it and simply moved on to somewhere deep in the book of Revelation, where the Almighty sits in judgment on all mankind and throws the whole book, final syllables and all, onto the pyrolyzed heap of man's version of creation. And to that, I just say, holy shit, Jim. <laughs> You've written a gorgeous piece of Thanks, literature Tom. here. Wow. I love it. Yeah, it's so great. Um, so, Jim, obviously, thank you so much again. We've got a, a, just a few other housekeeping items. Um, 
we want to thank our newest Patreon supporter, Tommy Quertaro. Um, Jim, if people want to check out any of your stuff online, where can where's the best place they can go to, to buy your book, um, contact you, anything like that that you want to share? Where's the best place to buy it? I mean, I'm not even going to say Amazon out loud. But, uh... <laughs> can people buy it directly from Zero Gram Press? On, yeah, on, on I mean, okay, go good. We'll, we'll go shop it. at uh, a local bookstore, yeah. and uh, you know, if they don't have it, have them get it for you. Yeah. I, I, you know, unfortunately, I buy far too many books. Uh, <laughs> uh, the same way we all do. Let's face it. But I, I like to support our local bookstores, and uh, the book does have a, a large distributor consortium, Ingram, yeah. and is available in local bookstores at, mm-hmm. at least here in the in the US and hopefully yeah, in here Canada. in here in Canada too there's a bookstore downtown in Victoria that my sister-in-law bought the book for me for Christmas from I I, I hope everybody buys it from a bookstore but otherwise if uh, <laughs> you're like me um, don't mind doing the horrible thing and giving Bezos more money uh, you can get it on Amazon yeah yeah excellent Um, if people want to get in touch with us Matt where can they find us I think we're concavityshow at gmail.com we always like getting emails uh, even if we don't respond to them in super timely fashion Dave usually does I do not Uh, I'm very slow with emails sometimes, but uh, we're a Concavity Show on Instagram and on Twitter. We're, that's pretty much it. I yeah. guess we have a Facebook page. Yeah, but, we don't do a whole lot over there. Uh, we don't do a lot on <laughs> Facebook. But, um, yeah. yeah, so people can find us there. And as, as always, we want to thank Robin O'Neill for her art, for our podcast icon, and the band Parquet Courts for the music. Jim, we want to thank you so much for being here and also for sending and us those Pablo. signed hardcover copies that you mentioned uh that was so lovely to receive in the mail from you and i also have a note here to thank pablo capra for being your sound engineer and for hosting you at his place for this recording and for editing your excellent book um i just want to say too jim that i've really appreciated and enjoyed our email correspondence over the past two months i guess we've sort of all been talking uh, leading up to this and it's definitely the most robust and extensive and generous discussion uh, that we've ever had with a guest prior to an episode. Um, so thank you for that. It's been it's been wonderful. Anytime. I hope we can keep the conversation Anytime. going. It's been yeah. fun. Uh, Lovely. Well, this has been episode forty-seven. Well, I hope I hope you guys got what you needed here. We <laughs> and and more. I noticed we're like an hour and a half in. Yeah, that's how that's how it goes. Yeah, it's always how it goes. It goes quick. You think, how am I going to fill up an hour of conversation? And then you get to an hour and a half, and they're like, "Ah, I haven't even got to all my questions. I still have lots more here." And it's like, well, we just gotta we gotta resolve at some point. Yeah. Well done, guys. Uh, Seriously, thanks for being on on our our little podcast. It means a lot to us, and like we really hope that. people go out and buy the book so if even if you see a little bump in sales i will be very happy that's my goal yeah. is to get people the book in people's hands totally. so it's funny we uh I, I think it's really just phenomenal man yeah. we had a, a contest a few episodes ago jim and 
the guy who won it is a good friend of ours named Chris Ayers, who's done a lot of like really cool artwork around Infinite Jest. He did like a whole host of James and Candenza movie posters and yeah. an Eschaton map and stuff. And um, all the prizes that we had to give away for the contest, he like made them himself. He like designed them. So we were like, well, what do we give this Whoa. guy? And he was coming to Victoria to visit. And I was like, oh, I have an extra copy of Novel Explosives now. I'll give you that and we'll go for beers and I'll buy you some beer or whatever. He's like, I actually just picked up Novel Explosives and, and for this trip and I'm reading it on the plane like right now. I was like, oh my gosh, that has, <laughs> that's great. I'm glad. Well, and actually, I got another story like that. My coworker who I talk to about books every day, uh, he's always asking me like, what are you reading? What are you reading? What should I read? And I told him a while ago, hey man, you got to get Novel Explosives. And he has a friend who he runs with who's always asking him for book recommendations and he told that guy to buy novel explosives even though he had not even read it yet. <laughs> he's like so, i have it on good so authority that you should read this book when the, yeah, when the book came true. out steve moore wrote me congratulations now in about seven years the book will be known by a, <laughs> a select group of people and, uh, uh yeah Oh, patience so. two, two or three four or five years it, it take a few you know wallace complained about this when infinite jest came out all the reviewers didn't really get it yeah. because they're reviewers and they had to read the book in like you know three weeks yeah. or two weeks to read the book and it's like it takes longer than that to truly digest this book yeah. and I, I people who read it that quickly you know it takes a while some people who might really love it it might sit on their shelf for a year before they actually read it yeah, yeah. and that it was could, the case could be another too, year before they jest. read it yeah. Yeah. you know and then well, you know, we have a friend in common, Christine Harkin. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool. Christine. Christine is a, uh, an old maid of Meredith, my wife. And oh, cool. Christine read Infinite Jest and dropped out of Silicon Valley and went off to, you know, start writing and get her master's. And uh, she's back now in Silicon Valley. But uh <laughs> She was the one. Christine and I were on a panel together. We were actually on a panel right, together yeah. at a Wallace conference in New York City at City University in 2009. That's how I met her. And uh, we were wow. the only two there who were not, no institutional affiliation. Yeah. You know, we were just there because we were independent scholars. And so we, they put us on the same panel together. <laughs> and uh, we really bonded over. You know, Wallace was only de dead less than a year by that point, or around yeah. a year. So it was still very fresh in, in her mind. Yeah. She gave us wow. a great tweet the other day um, about how it's not too late for us to change the name of our podcast to The Great Convexity. Um, <laughs> it's concavity. It's concavity. Awesome. That's been an yeah. ongoing joke. For I, the last I don't want to be sitting episodes. atop the convexity, uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I th it's just nice to say hi, though, and get a face-to-face -face yeah. to start off. Yeah, and... can I just say, I'm really excited about this, man. I'm, I'm really, like, it's a really, truly a pleasure to meet you, even over the shittiest program in the world. 